Welcome to Bears Over Beers. I'm Jeff Burke, a writer for Winnie City Gridiron, and I'm joined, as always, by EJ Snyder. EJ, 2-0 the hard way, but 2-0. How you doing? I'm doing great. 2-0 is not pretty, but 2-0 and working on things is far better than 0-2 and having lots of things to work on. So uh, if we're going to watch a team work through it, I would rather have them do that from the positive rather than the negative. So I will not argue with uh, two W's and no L's. Yeah, I think this is something that we're going to we're going to look back and we're going to talk about when we're in like late October, early November. We're going to look back and be like there was no preseason. We were tr- just trying to figure things out. Teams were figuring out who they are even more so than they normally do. Bill Belichick always talks about September is just the month to figure out who you are. And I think we're going to be trying to figure out who these teams are through October because we didn't have a preseason. And so picking up those victories, um, I think, is going to come back and be something that we are looking fondly on, even though they're ugly. We all want a perfect game, but that's just not happening right now. So Let's get into the beers. Um, I have had this rolling around in my fridge for a while. Again, I'm just keep continue to clean out my beer fridge. This is a blonde ale from White Oak Brewing. They are rooted in Illinois, normal Illinois, that is. That's on the label. I didn't come up with that. And this <laughs> is the so glad. <laughs> this is the Hala Acha American Blonde Ale. Uh, I like it already uh it as we are recording this on what is officially the first day of fall uh blondale seems an interesting choice but i've had plenty of those on my own so uh i was waiting for a ryan Nall highlight and and there was one in this game he called a <laughs> pass out the flat so i'm gonna i'm gonna call myself good and not wait for any more i have a beer i know you've had uh, but it is from the Belching Beaver Brewery, and of course, Ryan Nall, a very proud Amazing. beaver, from your one of your alma maters. And it is the Peanut Butter Milk Stout, and it's got a great animated beaver with a peanut in one hand and a stout in the other on the, on the can. So I'm pretty excited. It's a good beer. I've had it, uh, as you mentioned. So let's get them open. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that you should drink a blonde ale on the first day of fall, uh, but more than anything, it's if it sits in through another winter, that's not going I, to be good no, for I you. Appreciate, so let's get I it appreciate out. the cleaning of the beer fridge as an annual exercise that should be undertaken by anybody that has one. And now that I have a larger beer fridge, that might be a larger clean-out. I might need some help once we've passed the social distancing part of this whole thing, but um, we'll keep you posted on that. But this thing smells well, like just... peanut butter. I'm not kidding. Holy cow. Yeah, I mean, that's some some beers, they list a flavor on the can, and you open it, and you're like, ah, maybe, yeah, there's a little. No, this is, you open it, it smells like peanut butter. Yeah, it's a, it's a good beer. And this one seems to have probably sat in my fridge too long. But um... <laughs> Holy cow. I just took my first sip. That's um, that's a heck of a thing. We'll, we'll be We'll be following that up at the end. It's not bad in any way, but it's surprising how much that tastes like peanut butter. So, Punch you in the mouth a little bit. Well, I wanted to start off with this is obviously a late addition to our agenda, but we woke up this morning to the news that Gail Sayers has passed. And I just I just wanted to mention, you know, we're we're young enough to where we didn't get to watch him play. We only got to see highlights and know him as a historical figure. And as someone who has, uh, you know, dove into Bears history quite a bit, he is just such a, a likable guy. He means so much to this franchise. 
there's really only two players in the history of the Chicago Bears that had what I would consider a good relationship with owner George S. Hallis. One of them is Sid Luckman, and the other is Gail Sayers. Those two had a bond that uh, was really special, and and there's some notes passed between them. And I mean, it's just it's one of those things where you read and like again, you wonder why there's so much dust in the air when you're when you happen to be reading these notes. And and so he he means so much to this organization. Obviously, he was an incredible football player. He's I believe the youngest player to ever be enshrined in the National Football Hall of Fame because his career was cut so short, but he was still a first ballot Hall of Famer. And it just shows you how special he was on the field. But he continued to be part of the Bears organization for his entire life and just a beloved figure and someone who was very easy to care about and certainly it impacted everybody that um, is, is a big Bears fan. And so I just wanted to just get that out there and cheers to Gail Sayers on – uh, a great life and, and thoughts yeah. to his family. This one's for him, for sure. It was the very first thing I saw when I woke up this morning. It's a rough start to the day. I certainly knew he wasn't well, but you just go, ah, I guess it's today. And great player, great person, uh, really good relationship with the organization, but just such a seminal talent if you watch gail sayers highlights if you haven't i would certainly recommend it because it's a good time it's super fun but the what stands out to me about the kansas comment is that he didn't really look like anybody else i haven't seen another player where i've looked at him and gone you know who he reminds me of he reminds me of gail sayers like gail sayers reminds me of gail sayers and that's it it's a one-person list Football is not everything, and he had a very full life off the football field. He was a philanthropist, and just you can go learn about Gail Sayers. We're not going to dive into that here, but all credit to Mr. Sayers as a person, all sympathy to his family in this time. Yeah, when I was doing the championship belt series, I you know have a little bit of a description of their playing style, everybody that held the belt. You know, which was you know trying to find the best player on the team at the time, and and he held the belt from sixty five to sixty seven, came on as a rookie, and just kind of took it over, and I used the word virtuoso to describe his playing style, which is something that I felt really, really kind of described him to a T because it a virtuoso is someone who's doing something at a level that just has not been seen before, and and so that was to me the word that I could find to try to describe what I was seeing on the screen in these highlights. Um, and then I would also recommend to anybody that has access, I mean, I think it's on YouTube, but just watch the 30 for 30, or no, it's the yeah. football life. Watch the football life of Sayers and Buckus. Those two are connected by the draft, but they have remained lifelong friends. And their two stories are incredibly powerful, and they're told in a very good way by the NFL films on that uh, football life. And and I think that that will give you a pretty good insight into to the men, both Dick Buckus and Gail Sayers. But I think now is the time to kind of go back and reflect on that. Yep. It's a sad day for Bears fans. And, you know, we'll move on. But all credit to, to Gail and what he did, what he was able to achieve. And, yeah, that running style. Virtuoso is great. I say grace a lot when I watch him run. Hmm. because he just has the ability to float and punch and move 
in a way that it just makes you feel like he could have done anything, right? He could have been a dancer. Right. He could have been a football player. He could have been a, a, a tennis player. He could have he could have done anything athletically, but he chose to play football, and he was just really really good at it. So we're gonna we're gonna recap the last game, and obviously the Bears were able to move to two and zero with a seventeen to thirteen victory over the Giants. I don't know about you, EJ, but that game did not go at all like I thought it might. <laughs> it was the mirror image of week one, I, right? In week one, they played three was. not great quarters. There were certainly things they did well in the first three quarters. The offensive line looked great. We talked about that. The running game definitely got back on track to where it wasn't basically all of last year. So it's not that there weren't highlights, but they played three really flat quarters, almost three and a half. And then with about seven minutes left in the game, we all know what happened. Turn on the Jets. They end up, you know, burying the Lions and winning the game, which is weird. This time, they come out hot. They put up some points. They generate a couple of turnovers. They generate points off those, and they stake themselves to a decent lead fairly early in the game. And then, <laughs> bum, bum, bum. <laughs> they hold yeah, on for dear life. Yeah, with their fingernails <laughs> at the windowsill. It was not, yeah, they. we haven't seen that complete game. You talked about that in the open, that we want to see a complete game, and it would be great if we did. But it's just funny to me that we saw back-to-back games that were kind of mirror images of each other. Right, Absolutely. So I wanted to go through a couple things, point a couple things out that I thought were interesting and I think worth talking about. But the first, I, you know, let's just get right to it. Let's talk about Mitchell Trubisky. And there's a couple of things that I noticed, and I think that you noticed them as well. But he was doing some of the little things, kind of the craft element things that come with quarterbacking that I just necessarily have not picked up on in the past. And so I wanted to kind of highlight a couple of those. And it started off in the first drive. Trubisky's in shotgun, and he catches a snap. And he does something. I had to go back and watch it three times because when I saw it live, I said, well, that's interesting. I need to go back and watch that. So when I was going back and watching the replay, I saw it again, and I'm like, okay, let me – I got to hit this again. He catches the snap, and then he does a little squat. And I kept – okay, did he lose the grip, and he was just trying – no, I think he purposely did that to try to freeze a linebacker. And I thought, that is interesting. I have not seen him do that before. He looks like he's trying to manipulate and play some games. That's interesting. You look at the touchdown to Montgomery. On the snap, you can tell he wants Cohen on that drag route. Giants had had it sniffed out. They had it covered. So he scrambles off to the right. And then it's at one point he takes a very purposeful step forward towards the line of scrimmage, and that makes the linebacker come up. Right when he does that, he pops back up, dumps the ball over to Montgomery, who does all the rest, look beautiful on that touchdown run. A little later in the game, he has a play where he is, again, rolling off to the right, and he looks back to the middle of the field, freezes the linebacker, and then comes back to the right, throws the ball for a first down. It That is something that I don't think I have seen a lot of, and I was really happy to see those little craft elements of quarterbacking starting to get incorporated into his game. Yeah, I would agree absolutely on all those. And we saw them. The one that really grabbed me on the live broadcast, and again when I rewatched it, is the touchdown to Mooney. 
Like, that touchdown doesn't happen with Mitchell Trubisky playing the way he did last year. It's not about the throw, which is terribly ugly. We'll talk about that in a second. It's about the fact that he gets the ball, sort of heaves forward towards the line, realizes, oh, this isn't working, has guys in his face. Normally at that point last year he's going to fold. He's going to try and run out of what is still a clean pocket, get caught maybe thrown down for a loss, maybe get a yard on the sideline. It doesn't matter. Here, he backs up, pulls his head back up, realizes, wait, I've still got a clean pocket, and starts surveying down the field. At that point, he catches Mooney. He rolls to his right to give himself just a little bit of space, throws the ball beautifully back across the field. Well, not the ball beautifully, but picks up the receiver beautifully (laughs) and ends up with a touchdown to Mooney. But you could see in the middle of that him regathering himself and going, oh, the first part of that didn't work like I wanted to. And typically, up until quite recently, we did see some the year before in 18. But in 19, he almost never did that. Even on the games when he played very well against Detroit and against Washington, he was on a first or second read and he just looked smooth right off the snap. We haven't seen that, oh, I got discombobulated. Oh, I'm going to get my eyes back downfield and get dangerous. And good quarterbacks do that, right? That's a way they extend the play. You talked about the play to Montgomery. I ended up just rewatching that right before we started the podcast. That step was very deliberate, and the timing on that play. He needs to put the linebacker in conflict. If he doesn't, right. it's a he's short make game, a choice. right? Yeah, he's got to right. put him in a rough spot. And he steps, and with his running ability, it has to be respected. It's Blake Martinez, the former Packer. He steps up, he just floats it over, says, I got you, right? I got you. And he floats out a decent ball that Montgomery can catch and run with. And he, he did the same thing with the safety that you were talking about earlier in terms of putting stress on them by making them think, ah, you got to defend this and holding them for that half beat and then going to the open player. We haven't seen those types of things, and it is an exciting development. Yeah, absolutely. And I, those are the kinds of things, again, they're the craft elements of the quarterback position. I talked about it with Robert on his podcast a couple of weeks ago in that you know you, the quarterback position has so many of these tools, and you see these guys across the league kind of you know flaunt these things from time to time, and you're like, you're not seeing this necessarily from Mitchell Trubisky. Those are things that, if he continues to do that, I think that shows a level of comfort that is very encouraging. And so I, I know they're little things. And I know that maybe maybe when you you know, if you're listening to this, you might have been like, I don't remember what those guys are talking about. Or maybe you think, Oh, yeah, I kinda remember that. Those are things that you want to see. You want to see how he's manipulating safeties with his eyes, uh, how he's you know doing the shoulder shrug to try to trick guys that he's going to go deep and then cut something underneath. Like there, there are different craft elements to the position, certainly more than I'm even aware of, that it are very exciting to see when he's using those because I think that really speaks to a comfort level. And this is a great time to bring this up. One of the things that impressed me as I was going back through the first half right before we started recording is and and these are the kinds of things you don't necessarily catch in the broadcast when you're watching them. People that think the little things are not important don't really understand that the little things are football. And the yeah, indicators right. of those little things are not only in the plays that the Bears made. We talked about several positive plays that came out from Mitchell Trubisky's little things. They're also in the plays they missed, but barely missed. 
And there were a bunch of plays in the first half that were literally a shoestring tackle away from being a big gain or half a block away from somebody getting a hand on somebody and really slipping free. So, for instance, on the Montgomery touchdown, if he doesn't draw the linebacker in with that little bit, it's a short gain, right? right? It's not a touchdown. It doesn't allow Montgomery that little thing, that little half-step extra space to break into the open, use his speed, weave across the field, and score. And there were a bunch of plays. There were four or five plays just in the first half that were really close to being things that broke open for much larger gains or or turnovers or whatever. I mean, whether it's pass rush or whether it's guys holding their block on a hold just a little bit longer, you know, guys getting a clean handoff, uh, play action being done. This is another thing Trubisky's doing. Play action being done well. Like, he's right. selling play action right now, and it's an extra half a tick. It draws people in just that extra half a step. Now he's got a layer where he can throw to the middle crossing route. So football is the little things. And it right. wasn't just Trubisky. The whole team was really close to four or five extra big plays just in the first half. Yeah, well, let's talk about Montgomery now. That You kind of segued into him anyway, and that's something I wanted to talk about because – I think David Montgomery looks like he has arrived. He looks leaner. He looks faster. And I think he is obviously benefiting from this offensive line that has come in with a new mentality. And probably a new coaching scheme has helped tremendously. You've got the replacement of Kyle Long, who unfortunately just didn't have it last year. Um, Afedi looks like he has adapted to the right guard position quite well. Everybody looks like they're playing with a lot of push and energy. He was able to rack up 82 yards on 16 carries. That's over five yards a carry. He had three catches for 45 yards with a score. That's a great game out of your running back. And if you can have that level of production from a guy who looks like he is now pro-ready, sometimes that happens. I think a lot of times we expect rookie running backs to come in and just light the league on fire because we've seen it from a number of running backs because it's an easy position to learn and they've got fresh legs and they come in and they're able to do that. Sometimes it takes a year of that professional nutrition, learning the program, and really treating your body the way that it needs to be treated to get it up to that professional athlete level and not a collegiate athlete level. And I think that's what we're seeing with Montgomery because he looks like the the back that Ryan Pace had in mind when he drafted him. Yeah. First off, all credit to David Montgomery. He's playing extremely well right now. And the, and the game you just outlined is a very – Solid game from a modern running back. People might say, oh, not 100 yards. He didn't have a great game. He was very efficient with his touches, though, over five yards a carry. And he added the extra yards, gashed them in receiving, and came up with a touchdown from it. That is a balanced game from a modern running back in a pass-first league. So I think Montgomery is really benefiting from all the things you talked about, but mostly from the offensive line. Because we saw Montgomery run very hard last year. And had he not had three guys around his ankles, two yards deep in the backfield, probably 70% of the time, we would have seen more of this. He had zero space and very little time to show any of those moves. And now he's, again, getting what we wished for him last year, which was the chance to make those moves three yards past the line of scrimmage instead of three yards behind the line of scrimmage. In addition... You're right. He looks leaner. He looks faster. He looks cut like a V. You saw it on that 
on the touchdown run. And the other thing I think that he's benefiting from or adjusting to, or I don't know how you want to characterize that relationship, but last year he was sort of hunkering down to get hit when he got the ball because that was happening fairly often. Now he's a little bit more upright, which we didn't see so much in college because he was a bruising guy. He made people miss, but he didn't run upright. And that's giving him a chance to really open up his legs and show speed in a, in a little bit extra gear that we haven't seen before. And it's because he can open up and say, all right, now I can run. I don't need to protect the football the second I get it. I don't need to bash through somebody, you know, before I get to the line of scrimmage. I can, I can stand up and have a little speed here. And uh, on that touchdown run, you really saw it. He ran vertically. As soon as he put his hand on that guy's face mask and took off, his torso was vertical, and he was working on RPMs for his feet. He was just driving for the end zone. And he made it easily. So right. this, all these things working together, again, all these little things working together, and the end result is looks really good this year. Yeah, I think the, the word last year when he was drafted that we kept hearing was, or the phrase was contact balance, right? That's the scouting term that you guys like to use when, when talking about running backs that, that have that trait. That's a great trait to have, obviously, because he's going to break a lot of tackles. But it is a lot easier to break tackles at the second level than it is behind the line of scrimmage with 300-pound defensive linemen. So you're absolutely right. Good blocking is going to <laughs> uh, produce good running lines. That's that's just basic football. Very excited about David Montgomery, though, because if we continue to have – I mean, really, yards from scrimmage, that's the measure of modern running backs. And if he's putting up 120-plus yards from scrimmage on a regular basis – that is a good running back, and we should be very excited about that development. Yeah, absolutely. They're gonna, people are gonna try and come for him. And again, if people start packing in the box, and you know Mitchell Trubisky can have an efficient game, it doesn't have to be a brilliant game. He has enough weapons on the outside. He has enough weapons on the inside now with a revamped tight end core, and uh, quite frankly, other guys we haven't even talked about, but. If he can exploit them when they start putting eight and nine man boxes in there, or Montgomery can get out and get a mismatch on a slower linebacker, I think Montgomery against Blake Martinez, like straight up, is a, is a, is absolutely matchup I'll take. So there are a lot of options. It just opens things up. So even if people start to compress and say, "Hey, we're really going to press in. This line's looking great. We're not going to allow the run to beat us." Uh, options were limited last year because Trubisky couldn't read or throw as well as he is this year. If he continues even at an average level, the Bears offense shouldn't stall when they do that. Let's flip around to the other side of the ball. I was starting to hear a little bit of I don't negative chatter from Bears Twitter, which is, you know, maybe I just need to <laughs> shut it down every once in a while. But, you know, people are saying, well, this defense isn't elite. And it's like, okay, they gave up 13 points. There was a pick six. That got called back. They forced two turnovers. They had a lot of pressures. They put a lot of pressure in Daniel Jones' face. That pass rush looked really good, maybe even great. A sack each for Quinn. That was a strip sack. Uh, Mack got a sack. Hicks got a sack. Sparkavius Mingo was credited with the other sack. But the pressures, right? Mack had seven. Hicks had five. Quinn had four. I mean, that is what they signed Robert Quinn for was pressures and sacks, and they got it done. Yeah, this was one of our keys to the game. And last week when we were previewing the Giants game, our very first key for the game was put pressure on Daniel Jones. Don't let him be comfortable because if he has a good platform and he's not rushed, he's a he's a good ball thrower. He can absolutely get it out there to his targets. 
we knew that pressure had to come. The thing that impressed me in watching the first half going back that is probably even more so than watching the broadcast live is there was a highlight from every defensive lineman in the first half, and I mean everyone. We had the Quinn strip sack, which was great. Remind me to tell you a note about that one. We saw Mack get pressures. We saw Hicks get a sack. The Mingo sack is really a Mack sack. Mack pushed him out of the way. Mingo cleaned it up. Good for him. Uh, We saw Bilal Nichols sniff out a screen. We saw Jenkins holding the middle uh, in the, against the run in a way that didn't happen. The middle the middle of the defensive line was caving in against the Lions. So uh, we even saw Ray Robertson-Harris. Uh, pressure, not quite sack. He was a little upset about that. But every defensive lineman got into the act, and that was awesome to see. And, it, and the effect was Danny Jones did not have a lot of time to stand back there and throw the ball, and that was very detrimental to the offense. The little thing about that Quinn sack that I saw yeah. – Guess who was out wide covering the wide receiver on that sack? Oh, I don't know. Roquan. Okay. Roquan. <laughs> oh, bash up against. Roquan is the outside corner on that sack. Interesting. Yeah. He he rotates out to follow a guy in motion, and he is literally like five yards from the sideline, lined up in press man. And I was like, what? And then, of course, Uh-oh. Quinn comes in and, you know, <laughs> Quinn comes in and gets the strip sack, and it turns out to be a great play. But I, right before I was like, ran that back, I was like, whoop. Wait a sec. No kidding. So, yeah, just one of those little factoids that sort of slips under the radar because Quinn made a great play. Well, Quinn looked a lot like that Mac play where he's reaching around the edge yep. and, just, and hitting the ball out. Looked a lot like Khalil Mack in the last couple of years. But I think that the def- as far as defensive linemen and getting pressures, it seems contagious, right? It seems like... Like, oh, you got one, I got to go get one. And, and it, it, I really do think it's it's a contagious kind of, of feeling where guys want to get their own. They want to record that sack. And so there's just this weird little extra motivation that just kind of piles onto each other with that defensive line. And that is really fun to see because when that gets going, it's just going to keep accelerating. Yeah, it reminds me very strongly of the first month of last season. And it's hard to remember any sort of positives from last season, but for the first month of last year, the Bears' defense was as supercharged as I've seen it. They were crushing teams. They were voracious. And, yes, everybody was bloodthirsty after that and going after it. And then Hicks got hurt, and the wheels fell off. So I'm really interested to see, now that Quinn's back, it looks like he's going to play again this week, all the weapons are there. Everybody's healthy. Everybody's playing well. Everybody's sort of, I hate that phrase, but feeding off each other. Mm-hmm. right? Everybody's doing that. Are we going to continue to see that? Because last year, Pagano really dropped off after Hicks dropped off. right? You lose a major blue chip talent right in the middle of the line, and he wasn't able to sustain it. There weren't enough other threats. We were like, oh, Bilal Nichols will step up, and oh, Roy Robertson-Harris all those guys dropped off as soon as Hicks dropped out. So I want to see what this pass rush looks like in November. Absolutely. Yeah, that'll be interesting. We'll, we'll continue to watch that because I think this is the key to this the success this season is how well that pass rush. And that's obviously what Ryan Pace thought too. That's why he gave all that money to Robert Quinn because he's putting everything on that pass rush. But I, I wanted to pose this to you, and this is kind of hypothetical, but it's, it's enough to where I think it's worth discussing. When you have an all-pro talent in Kyle Fuller as your cornerback one, and you have 
an all-pro talent in Eddie Jackson, who is one of the, if not the best free safety in the league, and you add a young corner who has stepped in and looked mature and looked like he has played for a few years, and he looks like he has all the talent to be not only a solid cornerback two, but develop into a cornerback one, you start to wonder, is the secondary the strength of this team? It's tough to say that it's not. Uh, the only reason is the unit that we just talked about, right? The defensive line, we just talked about all that talent on the defensive line and how they're clicking. But the secondary through the first two games has been incredibly encouraging. Uh, if you think back to literally three weeks ago, there were people saying, oh, this is going to be Kyle Fuller, Kevin Tolliver, Eddie Jackson, and whomever that they start at strong safety, right? And you look at that group and you go, well, Fuller and Jackson better play pretty darn well. And Jalen Johnson comes in from Utah and has been the, I believe, the second highest graded rookie in pass coverage in the league. And if you take rookie off that, he's still in the conversation. He has played at an extremely high level in terms of passes defended. Uh, First week we sung his praises because he was in phase on almost every play. So now you've got Three strong players who are playing very well. Eddie looks great coming down, breaking across the middle on those routes. Kyle Fuller told Daniel Jones to GTFO in the first quarter (laughs) because he came for him twice and he knocked away both of them and was like, yeah, keep coming. Come on, Danny, let's go. And he didn't come at him the rest of the day. And nor should he because Kyle's Kyle's playing at an extremely high level. We haven't talked about that, but it deserves some praise. And you got Jalen on the other side, who we already talked about. Where are you going to go with the ball? Like, there's not that many routes left. And Roquan played extremely well underneath this week. He's back to his fast, sort of rangy self. I talked about him being out in coverage, but that's a guy you can play against most tight ends and certainly running back wheels with very few exceptions. All of a sudden, you have that sort of underneath bubble covered. You've got both edges locked down, and you've got Eddie breaking forward on any sort of deeper routes beyond that bubble. You've got, in just four players, pretty solid coverage over most of the field. It makes it very difficult, and that pass rush can go to work. Well, you think about the Seahawks teams that made their deep runs and their Super Bowl win, you know, led by the Legion of Boom, and they really had three standout players in that secondary that drove them. And you just think, like, man, it kind of feels like if Jalen Johnson can take that step, and, you know, that's a lot to ask for a rookie, but he has looked so good so far. Do you think this this has some possibilities to be the strength of this team and a lot of fun to watch? Because, you know, it's a passing league, and if the Bears have a secondary that can stop that pass, it's going to be a lot of fun. You know what I can't lay off of, though? I know. Let's let's hear it. Let, you know that that I, I really like my red shirt analogy of the, the Star Trek. It was of every so year good. We're going to have a new red shirt, but the red shirt that you were hoping would be a blue chips shirt uh, from the draft. Go ahead and yeah, because on that top five list of rookie pass defenders, Jalen Johnson's number two, which is awesome. I'm very glad that he's on the Bears. But number five was a certain player that was available. When Cole Komet was taken, and that's Antoine Winfield Jr., and he's down in Tampa Bay, and if you've seen some of his early season highlights, he is lighting it up. He is playing at an early, and it is very early, 
all pro level. And if you plugged him in and picked up a tight end from, oh, somewhere else, or just went with the other 10 that you had at that point on the (laughs) roster, you would now have a lineup of Antoine Winfield Jr. and Eddie Jackson at safety, Kyle Fuller and Jalen Johnson at corner. And where the hell are you going to throw the ball against that foursome? In a passing league, you talked about it. It is a passing league. If you have those four locking down all the receivers and the pass rush that the Bears have in-house, which would be unaffected by that particular draft pick, everybody that's here would still be here. Oh, boy. Like, that is a conundrum for offensive coordinators. Yeah, it would be pretty interesting. And I have one more note on this game that I just want to talk about. And actually, this is just kind of my room to just complain a little bit. Okay. But what would it, what would talk, bears over beers be without a small Burkus rant? We just need a little bit. A little bit. Okay. But so this is the tale of two interceptions. So uh, yes. uh, you know, Bradbury made a very nice play on Allen Robinson, but I'm not quite sure why that's not pass interference when the call goes against Eddie Jackson that he took back to the house on the pick six. So Eddie Jackson went for the ball. He made contact with the wide receiver a split second before the ball got there, but he's going after the ball. That is a play that happens in the league regularly. It's not called all the time. It's called sometimes. I'm, it's not. This is not the unique situation, but it is not a, a consistently called pass interference. Eddie makes a great play, takes it all the way back to the house. That would have salted the game. Instead, we had to kind of sweat it out. And, and they got a first down off of it because they got they got a they got a pass interference call. Now Trubisky makes a throw. You know he underthrows Allen Robinson. Allen Robinson comes back through Bradbury, basically catches the ball over his back, and then as he's he's coming down with it, Bradbury takes it away from him. That is a call that is made pretty regularly on the cornerback as pass interference because he didn't turn around. Now that's not illegal, but he still made contact with Robinson before the ball got there. And so that was very odd to me that that wasn't a first down for the Bears just on the very fact of a a pass interference play. And here's what is irritating. Those two plays made that game very close. And the Bears could have lost that in the last seconds. They didn't, so great. The the, the result is fine. But here's what bothers me from a long-term perspective is that that Eddie Jackson pick six is it never happened. It's not on the record books. It never happened. And so when voters go and look at all pro and pro bowl, maybe that is the difference between him earning a first team all pro and not. And then in 10 years, 15 years, when we're looking back and we're talking about hall of fames, those numbers matter. Those records matter. And that is something that got taken away from him there that is going to just burn me because I know that this guy is so good and I want everything good to happen to him. And so this just kind of ate me up all day. It's actually, it's Wednesday and it's still eating me up. <laughs> I was, I was going to say all day, just today. Really? You just figured this out? No. Uh, what kills me is I'll, I'll throw a third interception in here that uh, stood as called and it was for the Bears, it was Dion Bush's interception earlier in the game, and it's the exact same play that Eddie made his interception on. Literally, defender coming from the same side of the receiver, same pass, same depth, makes contact with the receiver, catches the ball, 
they call it a clean interception, bears ball, they go throw three points on the board. Like, it's the same play from the same orientation with the same teams in the same spots, and in the second half, you call DPI, and in the first half, you go, no, that's yours. Now, big difference, Deion Bush didn't take it 35 yards and score, (laughs) which is an obvious game-turning play. But if you look at those two interceptions, they are cookie cutter. They are carbon copies, and one stands and one doesn't. And that actually bothers me more. The Bradbury thing, what bothers me completely about that is he has his forearm in Robinson's gut well before the ball gets there, and he never looks back at the ball. He's not playing the ball. And if you do not turn your head, that is typically a DPI call in the NFL. If you don't, right. if you make contact and you're not looking at the receiver, it's an auto flag. Right. And so it's not an auto flag. And on top of that, like you said, Bradbury makes a nice play, pries it away from him, and they give him possession. So that in itself is a pretty huge swing from spot of the foul, which would have been a long game. It was a deep ball. To oh no, we're turning it around and going the other way when you. Made contact with the receiver before the ball gets there. That's a no-no. And you didn't have your head around. It's not defensible. It's not, oh, I was playing the ball. You weren't. You were playing the man. So in no way is that not DPI. That is like solidly DPI by rule. And instead you go, no, it's a Giants interception. And I'm like, ooh. I put on Twitter, explain it to me like I'm five how that's not DPI. Because it is. And so when you put the sort of picture of those three together, Eddie's looks a little bit more egregious, but Bradbury's was pretty darn bad in its own right. It's like you want, I mean, you'd like them both to go the Bears way, of course, because I think they're defensible both ways, but it's like either, well, you're letting them play the the Jackson one stands and the Bradbury one stands, or it's like, no, we're calling it like we normally call it. And, you know, we're calling it maybe a little tight. And so we're calling it on Jackson, but we're also calling it on Bradbury because he never looked around. So it just bothered me. And I just I wanted to bring it up and complain about it before we moved on because <laughs> now I feel better. This is the outlet. It's cathartic. Now it's cathartic. Yes. All right. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We are going to talk about the Falcons. All right, EJ, we're back. So let's talk about the Falcons. So <laughs> the Atlanta Falcons come into this one 0-2. They drop their opener to Seattle, 38-25, not a game. But Seattle is – Seattle right now is looking like the best team in the league, which is kind of fascinating because Seattle almost always starts off slow. And so I don't know what happens when they start off fast. They are either going to go 19-0 and and just run away with this thing or it's going to be a bizarro year and they're going to crash late. I don't know. But Seattle looks amazing. They kind of blew them out. And then – they play the Cowboys, and I honestly, this is one of the craziest games I have ever seen. <laughs> they blew a huge lead, and I know, insert your Patriots Super Bowl joke here, but they lost to the Cowboys 40-39, to and they lost because they didn't know how to recover a really weird, like, spinning top onside kick because i don't know they thought that the ball had to go 10 yards before they touched it i the weirdest special teams gaffe that i have seen in a long time but just a huge collapse out of out of the atlanta falcons and and i would say in rewatching this game look their offense is great they can move the ball with ease they scored a bunch of points against the cowboys they scored you know they put up a ton of yards against the seahawks they just didn't have any trouble they got matt ryan matt ryan's a good quarterback their defense looks like it can be bullied in the run game. 
it looks like Swiss cheese in the secondary. Yeah, I. It was funny. You were rewatching this game. You texted me, and it was in like the first quarter, and you were like, "This is the weirdest game." And I was like, "How far are you along?" And you're like, first quarter." And I was like, "You have no idea. You haven't even gotten to the good part yet." And the Falcons are a really interesting team. I think the Falcons have arguably one of the best receiving cores in the league right now. Uh, Julio Jones is Julio Jones. He's struggling with a leg, but um, he's Julio Jones. He's an alien. He always has been. He's he's a preeminent talent wide receiver. Calvin Ridley came into a lot of praise and has been very good since he started, but he is ascending, if that's possible, and it is. He is going towards that alpha number one receiver on a team with Julio Jones. He's done it for two weeks. That alone should give you pause, but we just talked about the Bears' secondary, especially the outside corners where those two guys play, being strength. So I can't wait to see Ridley and Jones go up against Jalen Johnson and Kyle Fuller. That's going to be must-see TV all by itself. Matt Ryan can throw, absolutely. Good ball thrower. Not great under pressure, and we just talked about all the pressure the defensive line is able to bring. Atlanta's offensive line is okay. It's not like it's the Bengals' offensive line, which is abjectly terrible. But it's not great. It's definitely susceptible to a little bit of pressure. So this sort of falls back into our category again of... If you put some pressure on Matt Ryan and don't allow him three or four seconds to try and get it out to Calvin Ridley or Julio Jones, the Bears are going to have a much better time of it. The offense looks decent. The defense, you talked about it being bullied in the middle. And Deion Jones was a guy that came out that I underrated, uh, certainly uh, coming out of the draft. He, I thought he was too small to play middle linebacker, and it was one of my scout the scout moments when I went back after he had like 120 tackles his his freshman year in the NFL and said wait how does this work I had this guy as a no-go and you know realized that the game was lighter and faster and that was that those were all good traits now so I've watched Deion Jones career very closely because he was a strong miss for me looking at him this year they list him at 227 if he is a pound over 210 I would be stunned. He looks like a pure safety. And I cannot wait for David Montgomery to get singled up on Deion Jones because I will take David Montgomery in that matchup all day long. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm interested because I, I saw an incredibly undisciplined defense when I watched that game against the Cowboys. So anytime the Cowboys did anything with misdirection, with play action – they just open themselves up to huge gash plays. And I think that Matt Nagy has to be watching the game film of the Falcons defense and going, oh, I am going to have so much yeah, fun. cannot wait. Cannot <laughs> Gather wait. around, yeah. children. I am going <laughs> to tell you a tale of what I am going to do to this defense. Because they just, they're playing without discipline. And, and when you have an offensive coach that understands how to manipulate, which I think Matt Nagy certainly does, that really opens up a lot of possibilities in the playbook. And again, we talked about that at the top of Mitchell Trubisky finally using play action, Matt Nagy finally calling play action plays. This is the time to unleash that. And I think that we are going to potentially see a big offensive outburst because this defense really is susceptible to it. The other trend that's 
rising throughout the league, more popular than ever, is pre-snap motion, including snaps while motion is occurring. So not just pre-snap motion and having a player reset, but actually having a player in motion at the snap is on the rise across the league. Stats bear this out. It's it's gone up every year for the past three years, and this is a pretty solid increase this year. We've seen it from the Bears as well, and that is going to allow Matt Nagy to tell that tale to Trubisky and say, this is your indicator. I'm going to move this guy from here to here. If this happens, this is what you're looking at. Go here, right? So if you can move that defense around, and as you said, you can right now. They are susceptible to that and they are not playing great discipline. The Bears have shown misdirection. They have shown feints. They have shown a ton of play action. Those are the kind of things that defenses like Atlanta's that is not playing with great discipline, either gap discipline or assignment discipline, are very susceptible to. So I think you're right. I think Matt Nagy's got this game kind of circled, and he is like, I can't wait for Sunday to come. Well, to your point, I saw the Bears do that with Mooney on a play or I think in the second quarter maybe, where he came from the right side of the field in motion all the way to the left, and then as the ball was snapped, he basically ran a little drag route right back across where he came from, about two, three yards um, beyond the line of scrimmage. Didn't get the ball thrown at him, but I was like, oh, that's interesting. And so maybe we'll see more of that. And as Mooney becomes more involved in this offense with his speed, and the speed you have to respect, it'll be interesting to see how they're using him and and using him as a chess piece to to really try to, like you say, indicate what the defense is going to do, and and also just try to take advantage of his natural talents. So so that's that's kind of that's one of our keys. You kind of mentioned one of the other ones, which is get, get up in Matt Ryan's face and attack him. It probably will be a pretty recurring key for every game since that's what the Bears do well. But I think that if the Bears think that they can sit back in zone i think that that's a very big mistake because matt ryan is a very good professional quarterback and you really need to get up in his face as good as he is he threw well he threw one that bounced off the safety's chest against the cowboys early in that game and he threw another one that looked like it was intended for the cowboys defensive player so he is not immune to throwing it in harm's way and so eddie jackson kyle fuller jalen johnson those guys have to convert those because i think Getting a couple takeaways against this team is a way for us to make sure that you know get him get Matt Ryan off the field, but um, it might take that kind of effort to turn the tide in this game. So, so those are those are kind of the top two, and then the third one I have, which again this is basic football stuff, but I because I think no lead is safe against a team that has you know this good of an offensive attack. They really need to start seeing field goal drives converted into touchdown drives. And the drives that kind of die at midfield get a little further and get converted into field goal opportunities that hopefully get made. I mean, obviously, Cairo Santos had a had a miss there at the end of the game that was potentially pretty big. So we need to start seeing more points per drive. Yeah, I fully agree. You're right. It's basic football. I just would like to see the Bears keep their foot on the gas a little bit on offense. It's not that they've gone as conservative as we saw them go last year. The the play-calling balance has remained pretty good, and I think that's a point for hope. That's a point for a positivity to say Matt Nagy has called, so far, two good games. He hasn't really gone into a funk 
where he starts calling plays of a type or we really see those very basic sort of, you know, two runs and a bad pass out to a punt. So I want to see the Bears keep their foot down. And even if they're getting field goals instead of touchdowns, I want them to come out on the next drive like they're not just trying to burn clock because I think you're right. If you give Matt Ryan enough rope late and he has Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley, that's enough for them to come back and throw up some points late. And I don't want to see it this week. I would like to see them keep continual pressure. I don't mind touchdown, field goal, touchdown, field goal. As long as you're continuing to put the pressure on, it's when you kind of go field goal, punt, maybe Mm -hmm. field goal, punt, punt. Then you're like, oh, you're just inviting Atlanta back into the game. Please don't do that. Keep it going. And again, so many little plays this last week versus the Giants were, you know, one shoestring tackle away from being a decent gain or one sustained wide receiver block away from being a better gain. Execute. You know, execution came up a lot from week one to week two. I would love to see a similar jump from week two to week three. If the Bears do that, I think we have a much better chance of seeing a more complete game. Yeah, I think overall that the Bears are a more talented team from top to bottom. The Falcons have the elite players at wide receiver and i would i would say that matt ryan is if he's not an elite quarterback he's he's the he's the level below it he's a more traditional quarterback not necessarily a threat to run but he's darn good he was certainly mvp a few years ago took him to the super bowl he is a really good quarterback beyond those players you start to kind of lose that you know, there's no real elite unit or really good unit beyond those. Whereas I think the Bears match up pretty well with that, with having, I would say, an elite pass rush and what's turning into potentially an elite secondary, which we're very excited about. So I do think that the Bears are a little bit more talented top to bottom. And early in the year, you hope that the talent will win out. But again, there are so many things that hinge on just how many drives can you steal away from Matt Ryan, make him sit on the bench. And hopefully, let's see if we can impose our will with David Montgomery in that offensive line. Yeah, one thing we didn't talk about was the Atlanta secondary is not great right now. And the Bears wide receivers match up pretty favorably with that. You mentioned Darnell Mooney earlier, uh, a rookie who has come on and exceeded all expectations. I really liked the pick in the fifth round. Uh, out of Tulane and thought, hey, he adds a speed element, but he has come up and sort of exceeded expectations at every spot at camp, ended up with the touchdown. He had some big blocks last week. I think he's very solidly pushing into the number two role. And something yeah. we didn't touch on in the Bears part of this or, or the recap part of this is Anthony Miller had as bad a game in week two as he did a good game in week one. It wasn't just the drop touchdown for Mitchell Trubisky. Um, that he threw against the Giants that Miller dropped in the end zone. Uh, Going back, the tip drill, Trubisky interception, Miller got slammed at the line. He went out for the sort of nickel defensive back, and that guy put him on the ground. And so he was down. He was not an influence on that play, and therefore the nickelbacker could sort of float back into space and was available when that tip drill occurred. Like, there were a lot of things that Miller did not do well. He looked as poor in week two as he did promising in week one. That consistency has been the thing with Miller. He hasn't been able, when he's hot, 
he's amazing. And it's you talked about contagious with defensive line and sacks, right? I think if he catches that early dime that Trubisky throws in the end zone, he goes on and has a great game. But instead, he kind of goes in the tank. He ends up on the ground a couple times. Nagy called him out as running the wrong depth of a route. Uh, you know, these are things that should not be plaguing him in year three. And here comes Darnell Mooney. And in two weeks, he's literally taking number two snaps away from Miller. So it's no longer, you know, here's a slot speed gadget player. Here's a guy that's contributing in all phases and looks to be the Bears number two if he can continue that rise. So all of those guys should be able to have a pretty good day against what is not a great Falcon secondary. Yeah, that's it's a fascinating thing. And I think I was listening to Joe Thomas on Robert Mays' athletic podcast uh, yesterday or today. And what I found interesting in what he was saying, obviously he's talking about offensive line play, but he's talking about offensive linemen are judged by their mistakes. And it's all about consistency with offensive linemen, right? So you want a guy that is as consistent and is not making mistakes. Yeah, if he's pancaking guys, you know, the Quentin Nelson highlights, those are fun. Those are fun for guys that like offensive line play. But what you're really looking for in an offensive lineman is a guy that's consistent, shows up every week, shows up every play, and just does not make those mistakes. You don't get bonus points for pancakes. They're fun, but you don't get bonus points. Receivers, it's a little different because you're obviously going to get bonus points for those extremely great catches or those plays that you're breaking off. But the consistency part is still really important. If you're not running the routes at a consistent level, if you're making mental errors, that's a way for you to find yourself with fewer snaps or on the bench during big situations. And a guy like Mooney, who's come in and shown a lot of veteran savvy for a, for a rookie player, a lot like Jalen Johnson, very interesting to get into Ryan Pace's mindset of what he was scouting and what he was thinking for this draft, because he looks like he has found two players that were very much pro ready and have been contributors already. And so uh, it's interesting because I would have thought that Miller was taking that next step, especially with how good his week one was. But that week two shows you just the weakness in his game. And so obviously we are big fans of him and we want him to continue that ascension and get back on the field because it only benefits the Bears if they have three really good weapons at wide receiver. But it is very interesting to think that that consistency piece might be holding him back. Yeah, and Javon Wims deserves a shout. Had a couple of big catches, but also blocked his butt off. He was early on. He had uh, Montgomery had that run down the left sideline, and Wims gets done like pushing his defensive back back like eight or nine yards, and just flexes on him. He comes up and just like, yeah, that's right. I'm going to be here all day. And he is a (laughs) big bodied wide receiver that is very strong. Has grown into his pro body and has had a, a few catches, I would say supporting catches, more supporting catches in a role, uh, but is blocking like crazy, is playing on special teams. Like, that's a valuable guy. And, you know, a guy that you could roll into the third or fourth wide receiver spot with a lot of confidence because he contributes in all phases. Whereas Miller, boy, the highlights are absolutely number two, pushing on number one wide receiver. And then the next week he does the ghost job and just, pretty much completely disappears and is a liability. If you're not running the route at the right depth, maybe your quarterback gets an interception and Joe Thomas talked about consistency. They don't blame the wide receiver. The coach might, but everybody else goes, Oh, Trubisky threw a pick on a, 
on you know what turned into a tip drill. Well, who knows that one of those defenders wasn't supposed to pull off with Miller on his drag route, but he was on his back. So again, little things are football, and Miller did all the little things in Week One. We we called him out as a hero of the first game because he had four right. huge catches that powered that win over Detroit. He comes back and just lays an egg against the Giants. He really didn't do well in that game. So need those peaks and valleys to even out, and it looks like Mooney is having a, a much smoother game where he's contributing in all phases because even Mooney at his reduced size will just say that is contributing as a blocker. He's giving his all and getting in the way. So, again, you need consistency from your football team, especially in the passing game, because if you're doing inconsistent things, it leads to balls on the ground, it leads to interceptions and completions, stalled drives, all those things that sort of add up. And like you said, receivers don't get judged in the same way offensive linemen do. All right, well, I think that's it for the keys of the game. So let's talk about these beers and let's get out of here for the week. Um, My beer... I think it's been in the fridge too long. <laughs> I think it just kind of lost a lot of its appeal. I will say that I'm not tasting anything that is that interesting in a blonde ale. Um, I don't think that that necessarily would have volatilized out. I think it's just a pretty standard blonde ale. Nothing um, necessarily that interesting in the tasting notes. And so I, I would try it fresh and maybe in the middle of the summer it might change my mind a little bit, but um, as a beer that's probably been kicking around in the fridge too long, it, it wasn't all that great. All right. Well, what about you? we'll, uh, we'll bless you with maybe an on tap serving of that. So you can judge it cleanly because you know, look, it's, it's research, right? Absolutely. It's right. for science. It's for science. That's right. Uh, Bill Nye shout out on the podcast. So peanut butter milk stout. Um, you can taste all of that, and it's not bad on top of that, right? I opened the can, and there's a huge whiff of peanut butter, and you think, okay, maybe it's just the nose. Maybe it's just something I'm going to smell. I'm not going to taste. Oh, nope. <laughs> Whole full mouthful of peanut butter mixed with milk. But there is that malty beer stout on the back. It is a stout, and it all kind of balances out. Normally you might say, as I would, boy, that sounds really sweet and not necessarily what I want in my beer. It's not overwhelming, but it is very, very present. So I wouldn't call it unpleasant. Uh, it's a nice mix. It drinks fairly well for having those ingredients that I would not put, typically put in beer like peanut butter and milk. But overall, very drinkable. I had no problem finishing it. It was delicious. I enjoyed it when I had it up in the Pacific Northwest. Is it made in Corvallis or is it? Is it? Uh, uh, Belching Beaver Brewery. Let's see. Uh, no, brewed and canned by Belching Beaver Brewery in Oceanside, California. Oh, okay, okay. He's all ow, ow. Well, <laughs> you know, it can it can have an outlet in in Corvallis. So no, no, I, it's all good. There's so many good beers that come out of Oregon. They don't they don't really. I mean, sure they can take more, but you know, Deschutes and Full Sail and Ninkasi and the list goes on, right? Laurelwood, which is one of my favorites out of Portland. There's so many good breweries in Oregon that will let California have Belgian beer. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, uh, I will try to bring a fresher beer on next week. But do you want to get us out of here? Absolutely. I would love to. As always, you can follow our work on Windy City Gridiron. You can even see how our picks are going. We're using a new site to record those this year for uh, all the contributors and writers at Windy City. I don't actually know how I'm doing. I know I'm positive, but not great. I'm not in the top. So if you're curious about who's doing better, check us out on Windy City Gridiron. You can follow Jeff 
at Gridironborn on Twitter. You can follow me at the Draftsman FB on Twitter, as in football, or my other podcast, the Bootleg Football Podcast. But until then, let's get excited for the game against the Falcons. It looks like a good matchup for the Bears. So be watching on Sunday and bear down.